Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. I was adopted when I was four months old. And so already there is this sense of disconnect to my culture, being a Korean American woman and coming up in kitchens, working largely in just like French white kitchens, um, was just what I thought I was supposed to do to find success in this industry. Uh, that's what television and media and everybody showed you that would lead you to finding a successful career. My name is Kristen Kish. I, I guess I'm a chef, food person, television person, cookbook author. In 2012, Kristen Kish won season 10 of Bravo's Top Chef competition. Kristen, you are top chef! And in the years since, Kristen has built out a very visible career, including hosting Top Chef All-Stars, publishing a cookbook, opening her own restaurant, and launching food travel shows, including her current one, Restaurants at the End of the World. But what Kristen was focused on building early in her career, well, it wasn't matching up with what others were putting on her proverbial plate. What I realized is that after Top Chef, the amount of Korean American, Asian American people, adoptees that would start reaching out to me, I'm like, okay, all right, clearly I am, I am somebody and these are the things that make up who I am. But for a long time, I've ignored them. One, when I grew up, I didn't really necessarily always put in the forefront that I was adopted. My family is my family. They look different than me. I thought that was like, that's my normal. Mm -hmm. um, I kept pushing away my Asian-ness for a long time, and I felt very uncomfortable amongst other Asians. And I think it was largely in part because I didn't feel worthy of being in that space with them, right? And it felt like appropriation on my part. I guess what I was seeing, now I understand, was the lack of representation. You know, I think being, um, being adopted, it used to impact me in, I guess, a, a more negative way, uh, where I kind of place blame, well, I'm like this because of this, or, you know, I was given up and I, I was unwanted and all this stuff. But the other side of that is I was very much chosen, and that itself comes with a slew of emotions and things that I try to manage um, on a daily basis. So far this season, we have spoken about mindset from an individual perspective. But as Kristen knows, mindsets are also a decision and that decision can have tremendous impacts on other people. Which is why when she thinks about what she's making in and out of the kitchen, it always comes back to empathy. Finding true empathy was me understanding that the way I look at travel and why I'm interested in meeting other people and going to other places is because I get to spend time with a family that I also could have been chosen by. That could have been my family. And that drives a large amount of curiosity and empathy um, and wonder about where my life could have ended up being. I'm Caroline Modaresi-Tirani, and this is American Metamorphosis. 
So when I was opening my restaurant, I went in with this one idea that I just said, you know, at the end of the day, we're just going to we're going to treat everyone with kindness. Right. Which is a very generic thing to say. But if you kind of really start to um, nail down the specifics of how you're going to impact and infuse that into your own culture, whatever your business is, then you can start to really kind of define it. For Kristin, food is a mirror, good or bad. It's visceral, emotional, cultural. Food can call us out or it can comfort us, can make us safe or it can shock us. Which is why her approach to being a chef is in large part about the people creating the food we eat and the dialogue that food can inspire for the people eating it. I think by just nature of who I am, I received a lot of people that are minorities in a lot of ways. Just they felt safe coming. You know, this is a kitchen that they felt like was led by someone like them, um, which is very important. And then it was my responsibility to uphold what that actually meant. I show them that if they go to the dining room and there's, uh, you know, we get tickets with numbers and seat numbers and we never see a face. But if you go to the dining room, you just look around and you actually put a face to that ticket number, you cook differently. I swear to God you do. And it happens every single time. Anytime I need a reminder, I go out into the, the dining room and my team already knows when I come back in, free food for everybody because like my heart just melts and I want to make everyone genuinely happy. Um, and I think it's all in those little moments of, of creating better people to be then better leaders in general. These are all threads and strands of empathy. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about the questioning that you've done um, internally, introspectively. What advice do you have for people who are questioning where they see themselves in the world. Yeah, I I was that person that got overwhelmed and I was like, I, I didn't really know where my place was. And so I'm overwhelmed every single time I think about the things that I need to change and the hard things that are, are wrong with our world. And and I get I get into this pessimistic mindset. I never really thought I was capable of doing the hard things. I was just like, I, I, I don't think I have the strength in order to do it. Um, but these people just show you that with care and a love and skill and passion and all those things, like you can do hard things. Understanding and seeing how someone else does hard can hopefully impact the way that you look at your own life and say, well, I can do hard things too. But it's impact the things and the people around you. It's the same way that I can't change kitchen culture across this world, but what I can do is change my kitchen culture. And that's where I'm gonna start. You're listening to American Metamorphosis, a podcast partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the creative content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. This season, we have been exploring different mindsets and unpacking the science behind not just how, but why we think and act the way we do. Tapping into these insights can empower us to regain a sense of control in today's uncertain times and help leaders inform and refine their decision-making. Across the past five episodes, we have looked at different mindsets, from adaptivity, creativity, failure, recovery, and composure. And today, in the final episode of the season, we wanted, like Kristen, to take stock of the future and the people building it. Because in a future that feels increasingly daunting and tech-informed, leaders have to be active in putting humanity at the center what comes next won't just require resilience and innovation, 
but a mindset of empathy and understanding. It's important to have the human-centric approach to AI in general because AI impacts human lives, right? And, you know, most impactful form, it impacts our health, it impacts our wealth, or it inf- impacts our livelihood. I am Seth Dobrin, uh, currently the president of the Responsible AI Institute. I've been in this field for over 20 years. Seth might be in the AI space now, but his PhD focused on the Human Genome Project, the vast scientific experiment that led to the breakthrough of decoding our human genetic code. You started your career in a very, very sort of like human-centric space, and we're talking to you in the context today of AI, which I don't think many people associate necessarily with the human-centric space. Do you see it in those binaries? So, no, I, th- I think that perspective of thinking about the human, you know, the, the patient or the person afflicted with a given, you know, disease or, or, you know, carrier of something when I was a human geneticist really impacts my approach to AI and makes me really think about how is what I'm doing going to impact the human so you're you're working with this, um, you know, res- the responsible sort of AI institute. Tell me, what does responsible AI look like? How do you define what responsible AI is? Usually, when you say responsible AI, people think about bias um, or fairness or maybe even explainability. And those are bias and explainability are only two dimensions of what responsible AI really means. There's four more dimensions that I think are important and that at the Responsible AI Institute, we built assessments aligned to standards that measure these things. And the six dimensions we we measure against are, you know, systems of operations. So do you have the right governance and operations in place, uh, fairness uh, and bias, uh, accountability. So who is the individual, the one individual that's accountable for AI at the organization and for each individual system? Then the other one is is explainability, as I mentioned. Uh, and then we get into things such as consumer protection, right? What When it impacts health, wealth, or livelihood, how are we ensuring that the consumer is in fact protected against harm in some way? It's true that there are countless reasons to fear AI's impact on human life. Just take our culture's current fixation around OpenAI's ChatGPT, an artificial intelligence learning system whose output has shocked users and builders alike. The founder admitted that he is at times, quote, a little bit scared about the tech that he's created. And he's not the only one. In fact, the past 30 years have shown how modern-day technological disruption has sparked both fascination and fear. More and more of us are getting our information these days online, but not everything you read, of course, or see there is accurate in that space. Many people don't know the difference between something real and something created to deceive them. Google announced today they've achieved quantum supremacy. So what does that mean? Hillary Clinton is saying the United States will use the resources of the government essentially to help people in Iran, in China, elsewhere, whose governments are blocking Internet access. There was definitely sort of a libertarian zeal at the start of the internet. And I think that there are still some people that are ardent uh, believers in that camp today, even where um, there are some people who believe that the internet should have just been this free place, you know, no regulation or very little, and that it should be sort of, you know, like a kind of free market, free love, free space, whatever, free speech to the nth degree. And then there are other people who obviously take a different approach and, and want it to be highly regulated. 
where should we stand, I suppose, when it comes to AI? Well, I think you do have people in similar camps with AI. Um, and, and I think let's let's continue with that analogy, right? Social media pretty much started off as, you know, the wild, wild west. And and look where it got us, right? It got us misinformation. It got mm. us misogyny. Um, it got us lots of hatred. Uh, and so, you know, that's well, misogyny the closest- and hatred. They were they and misinformation existed, right? What it did was a- absolutely it, it, it amplified, heightened, and allowed it to kind of spread in a in an unfettered way. Yeah, exactly. These things are just mirrors of humanity, is mm-hmm. really what they are. So it's a, that's a really good analogy because when we think about AI, AI is trained on data, right? So AI is just math. Uh, and that math learns from data, and that data is a mirror to humanity, and so it reflects all the things that humanity has put on the internet because these new models, these new AI systems, are trained in some cases, like OpenAI, GPT three, ChatGPT, and Bard, and others are trained on the whole or parts of the internet. And in fact, in the case of of Chat of GPT and GPT four, which was just released. In some respects, it was trained on the worst parts of the internet. Right. So it was trained on Reddit because it's a good free flow of conversation and it represents how humans communicate. So it was structurally, it was important to do something like that. But, you know, logically, it kind of has some some gaps in it. Right, right, right. Uh, um, and so, you know, it reflects what humans have put into those things, even in books, right? It was also trained on a large corpus of books, but books aren't necessarily good reflections of humanity. Right. There's lots of books like, you know, know, Hitler wrote a book, would would Mm. want it learning from that. Right. Mm. And so, you know, back to your your question about should we have regulation? I think on AI, there's it's 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 a gradient of where there's of what regulation should look like Uh, and regulation. We should regulate outcomes. So we shouldn't regulate AI itself. We should regulate applications of AI. And there is a difference between regulating artificial intelligence and regulating the uses of artificial intelligence, as Seth explains. If I'm taking out a mortgage and the AI is not fair or there's something wrong with it or they didn't think about consumer protections or accountability or explainability and I am harmed, that's impacting my livelihood or my wealth because it's it's you know it, it's impacting me having a place to live me being able to get the appropriate loan without having to put too much money down at a fair interest rate you know so and then you have things around healthcare right if you know one of the big gaps with healthcare is especially in the US is black and brown communities in the US tend not to get healthcare at the same rate, rates as white men Mm. And so if you look at healthcare data, it's really hard to find representative populations. And so healthcare, you know, that needs to be regulated too, because there's inherent bias built into the system first and foremost. The potential disparities and inequities that Seth is talking about aren't unique to artificial intelligence, but they can be amplified further by it. And as Kristin Kish said earlier in our conversation about diversity, To be part of changing an industry, you have to seek and be permitted to have an active role in shaping it. And that kind of, you know, gets to my next question, Seth, which is part of, I think, the the sort of reflection point of social media is just one example of kind of newer technology in the last two, three decades has been the people who've been programming it, right? That they have tended to be white, mostly affluent men. Do you see that picture being mirrored with the people who are the arbiters of AI? And if so, is that problematic? 
Yes and yes. It's a short answer. <laughs> um, you know, so I think, you know, podcasts so people can't see me, but I'm a middle-aged white dude, right? And the problem is that most of the people building these technology look like me or maybe maybe younger, right? Um, or hopefully younger. Um, and, and that's a huge problem, right? The groups that are building these systems need to reflect the society that they're operating in. Mm. But, you know, there's there's not a whole lot of women in this space. There's not a whole lot of people of color in this space. And it's hard to find them. If you don't have people of color or if you don't have, you know, uh, sort of if you're not thinking outside of just a singular gender and, and just sort of looking at men as being the arbiters of this kind of technology and the builders of it, what are some of the potential negatives that maybe we're already seeing as a result? There's a couple of real real world examples. So one is a few years ago, Amazon built an algorithm to help them screen resumes so there would be less bias in people screening resumes, right? Because humans are biased. We're all biased whether we want to admit it or not. We're, totally. we're all biased. Um, and what ended up happening is they used their past hiring to train a model. Now, the thing they missed was they have a history of not hiring women. They have a history of not hiring black people. They have a history of not hiring people of Latino background. And so their model is going to propagate that, right? And so it's not going to select women as readily as it will, uh, or, you know, men. And it will not select other populations as well as, as, well as it will white men. Um, and so they propagated that bias. Now, when we build AI, it's got one of two things it can do. It can, it can, it can help society be a better place or can propagate existing bad things. Hmm. And so by not thinking of these things up front and not having people on the team that are diverse, that are not white men, just people don't think about it. It's just not on front of, front of mind. But it should and it can be front of mind. And people like Kristen and Seth want to be part of the solution that means new companies, algorithms and restaurants are truly empathetic and reflective of modern society. If done right, AI can actually make the world a better place. We can use AI to, at best, eliminate, at worst, or you know, sub sub best, reduce the amount of bias that exists in society, reduce the amount of hate that impacts, again, especially health, wealth, or livelihood of humans, we can reduce that using AI because there are mathematical ways to account for these things and reduce them, you know, reduce the amount of them in the data. And because all of these systems are driven over off of data, as you make decisions that are less biased, it helps the models get better at making predictions or doing things that you want them to do with less bias in them, right? And so if we do this right, we can actually make society a better place. Balancing the risks and rewards of AI is something that's on the minds of all leaders right now, in every industry. But making sure that we don't lose sight of people as we think about the future has to be a touchstone. Every major technological breakthrough over the last hundred years was an opportunity and a threat at the same time. I'm Christoph Schweitzer. I'm the CEO of BCG. I've been at BCG for more than 25 years and our CEO for nearly two. As part of your role, you must spend a tremendous time talking to other CEOs around the world. Um, what are the biggest concerns that you're hearing right now? You know, when you're in those rooms, what are you all talking about? 
Christoph spends much of his time understanding not just business concerns, but also how to find balance in today's uncertain times. I think the immediate focus is to just navigate through unprecedented levels of uncertainty in terms of the economy, in terms of geopolitics, in terms of um, high inflation, high interest rates. The amount of shocks, the intensity of those shocks is at an all-time peak. So, um, by the way, inflation is one topic that none of the current CEOs ever experienced in their lifetime. So we have a new challenge for uh, CEOs around the world that none of us have ever experienced. And so that's uh, quite remarkable. It's actually a very significant um, and somewhat uh, difficult to handle economic phenomenon. And um, Mm. there's nobody out there who has lived through it. And then if you take a more medium and long term uh, look, everyone is, of course, staring at artificial intelligence. The uh, launch of Chat GPT has sure. put the topic uh, top of mind for many executives. And um, everyone is wondering, how does it affect my processes, my organization, my business, my customer interactions and um, my industry as a whole? So, how we, Christoph, how do you approach this this sort of you know, dichotomy, if you will, of having to deal with these short-term issues, you know, like market shocks, inflation, these things that are very, very acute and and we we have to respond, you know, you have to respond um, versus these sort of longer-term issues where you're perhaps not being able to respond on the same kind of time frame. The urgency might still be there, but the immediacy of the response can't be as acute. I think as a CEO, and as a senior leader also in government or in the NGO sector, you need to be able to process completely different timeframes, completely different set of challenges in your brain on any given day. And you need to do exactly the same with your core leadership team and with your organization overall. There's always a risk that 100% and more of your time and your team's time get absorbed by the short-term pressures. And Mm. I do think taking a step back and the ability to look at the medium to long-term and what it takes, as you say, today, the decisions you need to make today, the changes you need to make today um, to succeed in the medium to long-term, those are fundamentally important and you need to be able to process uh, that complexity. And I do think the most successful CEOs are able to do so. So how do you do it? I mean, do you, I mean, do you count yourself as in that camp of the, the successful ones that can do it well? And, and if so, how do you, how do you practice that, uh, that the capacity essentially to uh, remain adaptable yet composed? Well, it's way too early to uh, say whether I've been successful as a CEO or not. I'm, I've been in role for less than two years. And those two years, uh, Caroline, have been all over the place in terms of uh, crisis uh, after crisis, for sure. Oh, it's um, all cut so, you some slack, Crystal. Yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. Um, but now, look, I think it's literally, first of all, a question of who do you surround yourself with? If you just have a crowd of uh, firefighters around you, you will fight fire all day long. Mm. You need to make sure that you also have a composition of a team that is able to look at the medium to long term. And um, how you compose the team is really essential for that. Then it's simply a question of time allocation. (laughs) How do you fill your calendar? Calendars of CEOs do fill very rapidly at any point in time. And you need to make choices and make sure that you have proper time to think about the medium to long term and um, otherwise it just doesn't happen because the day has only 24 hours right Mm. and uh, the third thing is um, I think you need to 
take a step back and uh, always remember what your organization is all about. What is the purpose of the institution? What's the purpose of the business? And um, why are you in it? And uh, if you want to live up to that, what will it take to be successful in the year 2025 and the year 2030 and maybe even beyond that? So I do think it's a question of mindset. It's a question of time allocation. It's a, time, a question of team composition. And um, it's a question of just kind of the ability to straddle um, all these short-term versus medium and long-term questions at the same time. These questions about what we build and who's included are something that leaders like Christian Kish and Seth Dobrin are thinking about. And leaders in business are trying to grapple with them too. But as always, it goes back to the basics, to the core of why we all do what we do. It goes back to people. I would add one word, which uh, is empathy. Um, I find that in any leadership role, whether it's in business or in government or in academia, you can go very far if you are technically really good. You're a brilliant person in finance or you're a brilliant uh, engineer in automotive. Pick your favorite uh, space and uh, profession. But you will never be the best in your profession if you do not relate to the people around you, if you do not find the way to motivate them, to care for them, to encourage them, to steer them through difficult situations. I feel that uh, the whole topic of empathy is totally under reported as a key ingredient for success in pretty much any big uh, institution that I've seen. So you need help and you need to admit that. And once you show the vulnerability yourself um, and you show the empathy to understand uh, what others are doing and why they are thinking the way they are thinking, you become much stronger. For Christoph, that means acknowledging not just his own mindset on a day-to-day -day basis, but preparing the next generation of leaders around him to find opportunity in any crisis ahead. I'm blown away by the talent that I see. They uh, live and breathe digital every single day. Right. They come uh, into this with a deep understanding of uh, some of the challenges around climate and sustainability. They are very global. It's remarkable for me to see that that's a generation that's so much more global than the current uh, CEO generation is. And they are driven and they are passionate. And I feel there's a lot of hope simply because there's just a great um, generation coming into the workforce around the world. And um, they are much better than the reputation that some people uh, that some people attach to them. I think values, integrity, ethics are incredibly important for leaders. I don't think that uh, people are leading with a lack of values. You don't get into the job in these days. If you, if you have a lack of values or a lack of moral yeah, compass. Exactly. Absolutely. Mm. Moral compass matters a lot. If you are lacking the credibility on values, integrity, and if you have too many examples where you are lacking moral compass, people just walk away. You don't even need a board or a supervisory board of any sort to intervene. In fact, people vote with their feet. And um, you see that uh, across industries and across geographies. I think it's incredibly important um, for CEOs to be successful. And they get that. As BCG CEO for just the last couple of years, Christoph is already thinking of what the next generation needs and how they're going to lead. 
I have learned not to get carried away uh, to the positive when things are beautiful and rosy in all regards. And I'm equally not getting uh, depressed if things are really hard. I'm basically buffering some of the amplitudes away on the positive and on the negative. I do think that's hugely important to be personally resilient. I mean, there, there's a question of resilience for an institution, but there is one for you as a person. And um, if every shock derails you, you have a tough life as a CEO. Um, if you have your own methods to deal with it, uh, and if you're just even keeled and um, able to digest, it's still a tough job, but uh, you can do it. And that's a philosophy for the long and short term. Future-proofing requires a mindset that inherently pairs innovation with empathy, because people will mess up, outside factors will derail plans, and it's not about trying to mitigate, but knowing how to respond when they inevitably do. Things can go wrong along every single step. It's our responsibility as leaders to make sure that we minimize those and anticipate where things could go off the rails. The challenges around us are just so complex and so unpredictable, whether it's technology, whether it's geopolitics, whether it's climate, sustainability, talent, migration, pick any topic that might be on your mind. And um, these are hugely complex and nobody can understand all of the topics at once and certainly also not the intersections between them. When you think about the future then, are you hopeful? Yeah, it's a great question. One, one of the surveys and stats that frustrates me is that uh, last year, 2022, was um, a year where many of the global surveys tell us that the majority of the population in developed as well as developing countries for the first time in many years expect that their kids will be worse off than they were. Yeah? And um, I do think that's quite concerning yeah? because one of the biggest reasons for optimism and to have a long-term mindset is that you believe your kids are going to be doing great and you want them to do even better than you did, right? Mm. Um, so that's been one of the data points that kind of happened last year and nobody really noticed. I think it's a real game changer for how the world really looks like and feels like. Um, now, when I look at my own sentiment, I'm an optimist. I'm convinced that artificial intelligence is going to disrupt entire professions and industries. But I'm equally convinced that artificial intelligence will open up a whole new range of opportunity. Climate change. Uh, climate change is a an existential it's an existential threat for so many companies i mean how you can operate how you source how you can ship things when rivers go dry and, and similar things but fundamentally climate change and and the fight against it is also an opportunity for industry for investors for leaders for top talent to make a difference and i do think it can be really exciting so i'm optimistic and um in the end I, i'm also very optimistic because I have huge belief in the generation of the 20, 25, 30, 35 year old folks that are now getting into the workforce. Throughout this fifth season of American Metamorphosis, you've heard from some of the most capable, accomplished and creative minds. The world will throw in some things you like, some things you don't like, but how you handle it is on you. It's the attitude that you bring to it. They've broken barriers and crossed finish lines. If you rule out failure, you rule out success. You know, the only consistent thing about life is it is going to change. Composure is to be able to do what you can control. This could be one of the great wins in the history of the Boston Marathon. While everybody else starts hyping it up. 
And throughout it all, our guests have examined not just their surroundings, but their own mindsets. And that's how, as we wrapped up the season with Kristen Kish, she turned the tables on me. Can I ask you a question? Just, sure, yeah. just out of just out of curiosity. Yeah. Um, so you're you're a journalist and a, and a writer, and um, I've I've been having these conversations with these people. One in particularly stands out that they were talking about what's that app that's like generating these articles now? That's Chat like going to wipe right. It's the same way that someone asked me, like when robots started cooking food, they're like, are they going to replace, are they going to replace you? Right. What are you, are you nervous about that? Or what, how do you see that whole platform coming? I don't think, you know, I'm not really, I'm not really that nervous and this might just be a lot of hubris, but um, I don't believe that a piece of technology can do what we've just done, which is sort of explore the depths of humanness together. Um, Certainly, I'm sure that they could ask pithier questions, maybe shorter, tighter questions. They won't go on as many tangents. They won't be able to kind of explore and excavate in the same way. And, and perhaps that's better for a soundbite. You know, you're both, we're both in that TV space where they, you know, sometimes you just need that soundbite. But, um, but yeah, I'm not nervous because I don't think that we are going to be satisfied as a society without a real sense of humanness and that sense of what's real and I think it can't that, give you the empathy that people crave to feel connected to one another yeah I think that that's it right I mean it really is just a sort of fancy idea of what that is it's like who is getting to be around the table who gets to push the buttons and who gets to ask the questions and who gets to cook the food I'm Caroline Modoresi Chirani, and you've been listening to American Metamorphosis. Thanks to our entire Atlantic Rethink team Alona Minkowski, Leo Sepkowitz, CJ Ferroni, Emily Beaner, Eleanor Bell Fox, Rachel McRae, Devin Rocheford, and Maddie Loosebrook. And of course, to our brilliant editor, Evan Viola. Thanks as well to Nidhi Sina, Brooke Boyke, Alexandra Puy, and Amy Trojan at Boston Consulting Group. And lastly, thanks to all of the brilliant guests who've lent us their voices and ideas to shape this season. And thanks to you, the listener. If you've enjoyed American Metamorphosis, please rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts.